Amen. Well, welcome again to Sunday night service. I am excited for this series that we're starting tonight in the book of Habakkuk. Now, I want to give you warning. If you're one who likes to use your Bible, you can open it now because it might take you a little bit longer than normal, right? Because Habakkuk is not a book when you come to church or when you do your morning devotions that you naturally would dive into. But I fell in love and have loved studying what is called in Scripture the minor prophets back when I was in seminary. And so Habakkuk is what is considered one of the minor prophets. And you may think, well, why are we setting the minor ones? That's like the minor leagues. We're at church. Let's get into the major leagues. Let's go. Minor simply means short, small. Isaiah and Jeremiah are made their large books. And this book of Habakkuk is short. It's three chapters. I didn't time it. You could probably sit down and read it in less than 10 minutes. But what it lacks in length, it certainly makes up for in punch. And it is a strong book with lots of rich theology. It reveals God's character and God's working. So I am so excited to dive into this book over the next four weeks with you as we go through together the book of Habakkuk. Look at that. I told you to find it, and I don't even have my bookmark, so I'm going to embarrass myself, and it's going to take me like five minutes to, to find the book I'm preaching out of tonight. All right. So several years ago, I was, uh, I was contacted by someone who worked at a local Chicago public elementary school. And they, they contacted me and they said, hey, we're doing a panel discussion at our school with, I believe it was fourth, fifth, and sixth graders on religion. And we wanted to know if you would come and be part of this panel discussion. I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. Like, so I just want to make sure. So you realize I'm a pastor, right? And they go, yeah, that's why we called you. I'm like, okay, that's fair is can I talk about Jesus? And they said, well, as long as Jesus is foundational to your faith. I'm like, he's pretty foundational, pretty foundational to being a Christian. So I'm like, so let me think this through. You want me to come in and talk about Jesus to hundreds of public school? Yep, I'm in. I'm in. I don't have to think about that, all right? So a few weeks later, into a Chicago public school walk, a Buddhist monk, a, um, a Jewish rabbi, and a Moody Church pastor. That's not a joke. That, that actually happened, all right, in, into a Chicago public school. Here we walk, and we gave about five minutes in pastor lingo, five minutes, so you know it took a lot longer than that, right? Presentations on what the foundational elements were to our faith. And then it was about a half hour of question and answer time for these fourth, fifth, and sixth grade students here who live in the city of Chicago. Some of the questions were things that I was kind of thinking they would probably ask. And I was like, oh, that's a great question, right? They asked, like, what is the difference with all those, they didn't use the word, but basically why are there so many different kinds of churches for Christians? You have this, you have Presbyterian this, and Catholic this, and Moody that, like whatever that is, right? What, what, what are also explaining some of those? And after a few of those, though, that I think they kind of got warmed up. And suddenly we had 10-year-olds leaning in. And I remember one saying, if God is really in charge, why does my mom have cancer? Suddenly I was like, okay, I wasn't thinking this question was going to come, right? And I look at the other guys, I'm like, you got anything for this from what you're feeling? Like, okay. And there were other questions about that. And what struck me and I loved was this authenticity that they had in struggling through the hard questions of life. 
And I think as followers of Jesus, there are a few things more important to our faith in being honest and struggling through the difficult questions of life as they arise to us. And as we start off our series in Habakkuk tonight, we're going to look at the first 11 verses in Habakkuk chapter 1. And Habakkuk starts us off by asking some hard questions of God. And as we look at this passage tonight, our outline that we're going to look through together is three reasons that we should ask hard questions. Three reasons why it's actually good for us if we're a follower of God or we're wanting even to pursue more and wondering what it would look like to follow Jesus Three reasons it's good for us to ask hard questions. So Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, he probably, we'll stop there real quick. He probably didn't literally just see a vision, but saw has a greater, it means he more than just heard about it. It's an in-depth thing that he really wrestled with and struggled with. He experienced this, these things we're going to read together over the next few weeks. And it starts with this in verse 2 with Habakkuk's complaints. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long will I cry to you violence and you will not save? This idea of violence is one of the keys to the setting on what's going on. It actually occurs six times in just these three short chapters. This violence that Habakkuk is experiencing around him. And he cries out and he leans into God and cries out, How long will this go on? How long? The first reason that it's good for us to ask hard questions is as we ask God hard questions, it helps us to learn more about the character of God. As we ask hard questions, it helps us to learn more about the character of God. See, what Habakkuk is doing here as he starts the book is he's taking what he knows to be true of God and who God in Scripture has revealed himself to be, and he's simply looking at the life that he's experiencing in the world around him, and he's saying, I don't understand what's going on right here. This doesn't seem to add up. God, what is going on? So a little bit more of the context that we can see in this passage about what Habakkuk's life is like. Chapter, sorry, chapter 1, verse 3, just a few lines down, says this, describing the situation in which Habakkuk lives. Destruction and violence, there's that word again, are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. We know that Habakkuk lived around 610 or so, 605 to 610 B.C. And during that time, it was after the reign of what was one of the greatest kings of that time, King Josiah, who made great reforms. He really brought God's people back to God, and he instituted so many great things. But after him, as was so common during that period, the people quickly fell away from God. They quickly fell away, and his son Jehoiakim is now king over the region. And Jehoiakim is simply a wicked king. The descriptions throughout scripture of him is one who did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So much so that, that we see, and Jeremiah also writes about Jehoiakim, and he writes how he is such a, an awful ruler that his, his example is setting it forth so anyone with any power in the country is now perverting it for their own gain. And so it's not just the king that's living wickedly, but all of the other people who have power, instead of using it for good, are now exploiting it uh, to take advantage of others. And Habakkuk sees this situation. He says, we are to be God's people. We are God's chosen representatives on this earth. How long will I cry to you, God, and you're not hearing me? How long will you not save us? This question to God, how long? How long occurs 65 times in the Bible? It's a fair question to ask of God. One example of this is the psalmist in Psalm chapter 13. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long? Shall my enemy be exalted over me? I think many times we felt like this, and this is just one example. There's so many more from the book of Psalms and others throughout Scripture that we could go to of crying out to God when our lives don't match up, when the circumstances around us don't seem to think they line up with what God would have. It's good to cry out to God, How long? You see, when we lean in with questions to God, we learn more about the character of God. When the circumstances around us don't line up with who we think God is and we lean in and we ask God what's going on, we actually reveal, God reveals himself more and more and we grow in our faith through that. See, faith in God is never blind acceptance. Faith in God is never a blind acceptance where we don't struggle, we don't seek after, we don't push deeper in, we just go, all right, well, whatever it is, it is, and I don't, I, I don't need to look anymore. I'm just going to accept everything. That's not what it means to have faith in God. Faith is pursuing after God in our lives. And as we pursue and ask God questions, we actually see more in our hearts and in our lives about the character of God. I love that in, in later in the New Testament, some of the, the Christians were, were wondering and they were struggling with the return of Jesus. And they were wanting and they were writing to Peter, has it happened? How long do we have to wait until he comes back? And some were confused because they thought that God should have come back. The Messiah should have returned already. And so they cried out to God, how long till you're coming back? And Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3, he, talking about how long it takes for Jesus to return. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, they were crying out, how long would this happen? How long? And, and the, the Peter is revealing, well, you realize as you answer, as you dig into this question, what God is actually showing is he is far more patient with people than we are with others. And we are so focused on ourselves and our own suffering, but God is up there with a greater plan and his patient and loving heart towards them. And as we lean into that question, we realize more about the character of God. See, oftentimes... Especially, I think, if we've been around church for a long time. We struggle with how, if we're a follower of Jesus on the one hand, how we should handle this if we also have this thing in our lives that comes sometimes called doubt. How do we handle what it looks like to faithfully follow God, but also when things come in our lives that, if we're honest, we doubt 
in our hearts. And we're not sure what God is doing. We're not sure even who God is, maybe. We're not sure why God would allow things to happen. How should we handle our doubts when they come into our lives? I think the first thing, the first key to handling our doubts is to be honest with your doubts. To be honest with your doubts. There's nothing wrong with having doubts, with not knowing things about who God is. But doubt is not the absence of faith. Let me say that again. Doubt is not the absence of faith. Someone who does not have faith does not doubt. Doubt means that faith is present. Doubt is not the absence of faith, but doubt is simply digging deeper to a bridge that will ultimately connect us to knowing more about who God is. It's a character revealer of who God is as we doubt, as we're honest with them. So I just want you to know tonight, if you're here and you don't fully understand God, welcome to the club. Right? None of us do. There's things that come into our lives that cause us to doubt, to wonder, to to think things through over and over again. And it's good to be honest with the doubts that we have in our lives. But not just to be honest with them. The the second thing that I would recommend for us as we think about doubts and big questions is to dig into your doubt. To dig in. Okay, so I don't understand what God would do about this. Well, don't just say you don't understand it and see like, well, see, God must not be real if I don't understand that about God. Okay, that's hard to understand. You doubt that. But then lean in. Focus. Study, listen to a podcast, read a book, ask a friend, ask a pastor, ask someone what they think about this, how God's shown this to be true in their lives. Study your doubts, dig into your doubts, and see how God might reveal himself to you through your exploration. And this third way that we can handle our doubts is is the phrase, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Your doubts. Now, I get this from Tim Keller, who, who I don't know if he's written this or he said this, but I know it's from him, and maybe he got it from somewhere else, but I'll gladly give credit to where credit is due. He says, doubt your doubts, meaning this, don't assume that everything you're doubting is actually correct. Doubt things, but be willing to change your mind when the answers come. Have you ever met someone who had doubts about something, but it wasn't like an honest doubt? They weren't willing to change their mind. They weren't doubting their doubt. They wanted to doubt, and nothing that could happen would change their minds. Facebook and Twitter is a great environment if you've never seen people like this. Right? Have you ever seen someone um, who I think, I don't know if this is the correct lingo or not, but they love conspiracy theories. They're, di- they're, they're all in on conspiracy theories, right? So 9-11 was an inside job. We never walked on the moon. They were just had good, really, videographers back at NASA who staged it all, right? Or the one that I've seen a lot recently, I don't know how it's still a thing, right? But, but we live on a flat earth. The earth is flat. And I have seen, literally, I've seen pages of people debating on the internet about, and, and the people who are debating, they're, they're into this, and, it's, and no evidence could ever change their mind, Right? They're locked into their conspiracy. This is how it is. We've all been sold a hoax. It's all wrong. This is exactly how it is. And they refuse to listen to anyone else. So when you struggle and when you have doubts in your heart, be willing to change. Be willing and open enough to say, okay, that satisfies. That's an answer that satisfies my curiosity. I'm willing to move my position. Be humble in the doubts that we have. I think sometimes 
as we think about big questions and who God is. I know in my life when, when I doubt and when I challenge God on things, oftentimes I make the error of assuming that I know God better than I actually do. That I know how God has to work all the time. Have you ever had this happen in your life where someone just made this crazy assumption about you that like anyone who knows you, you know it's like the complete opposite is true? And you're like, what, what are they talking about? And then suddenly you have to help them realize like, yeah, no, what, what you're thinking right now, that that's doesn't line up with reality. That's not me. So often that's our attitude towards God. As we say, well, God is like this. And so why? And it's like God's up there in heaven. He's like, I'm not like that. We're just assuming, we're saying this is what God's like. And God's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not like that. That's so what I love to ask when people say, I don't believe in God. Well, I'll say, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in because I might not believe in that God either. Right? If, if it's a God of your imagination, we need to be willing to doubt our doubts and not assume that we know who God is and how he will work out his plan on the earth. So Habakkuk leans into this question, God, how long? How long? He's, he's troubled. It's affected him and he wants to know how long it's coming. And it's okay if you're in a season of hurt, of pain, of confusion, of difficulty. It's okay tonight to lean in to God and say, God, how long is this going to last? How long will this be in my life? And as we lean in to him with these questions, God reveals more of himself to us. The second question that, J- that excuse me, Habakkuk asks is here in verse 3. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, Why? Why? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? So why, why do you make me see iniquity? God, your people are supposed to be your righteous representatives on earth. God, we are to put, supposed to be so that when people want to see who God is, they look to us. He's like, th- they're not getting the right picture when they look at us right now. God, why are you sitting by? Why are we like this? And then, God, why don't you do something? Why do you idly look at wrong? Why, why do you allow violence and evil in and around us and you're not stopping it? To put it another way, we could ask this question. God, why are so many people getting killed in Chicago every week. God, why? Why is this happening? Why do you allow this in our world? A second reason that it's good for us to ask hard questions is hard questions help us grow in our relationship with God. Hard questions help us to grow in our relationship with God. I just want to encourage you tonight that it is a good question to ask God why. It's a good question to ask God why. Habakkuk does it here twice. And the Bible is full of examples of people crying out to God, asking God why things are happening. In Psalms chapter 10, it says this, Why, O Lord, if do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm chapter 44 says this, Awake, I love this, Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, help the alarm clock to go off. Angels, ring it. God's asleep. Someone wake him up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? 
perhaps the most famous question of why is Jesus on the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, it says this, while Jesus was hanging on the cross at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out why in his moments of anguish and pain and hardship. And Jesus there is quoting and crying from Psalm chapter 22, which says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. See, you think if Jesus calls out why, then it certainly gives us permission that we can wrestle with that as well. That we can call out and cry that out as well. I just want to tell you tonight, God can handle whatever question you bring him. God can handle whatever question you bring him. You're not going to say something to God tonight and he's going to be like, oh, I did not see that coming. Oh man, I got to go talk to the angels. Got to figure this one. God is not intimidated by our questions. He's not scared when we ask him hard questions. He's not scared when we lean in and ask him why. In fact, I think a healthy, growing relationship with God is one that is consistently wrestling with these questions and portraying them before God. Sometimes a lack of questions in our minds, a lack of questions in our hearts about our relationship with God is actually, it may indicate a lack of faith, not strength of faith. That if we have all the answers and we don't have any more questions, it sometimes actually indicates that we're not as close to God as we think we may be. See, in any healthy relationship, there is ongoing and constant some sort of conflict and questions and honesty and going back and forth, asking how long till you're ready and we can go. No, I'm sorry, right? How long? Asking why. Why did this happen? Why did you? There's a give and take. There's deep questions that, that happen in a relationship. And if you've been married or if you have a really good friend, you know that in good relationships, conflict actually and hard questions, do they take away from the relationship or do they deepen the relationship? They deepen the relationship as you journey through things together. I remember many years ago, uh, as my wife and I were preparing to get married, we met, with, uh, we met with a pastor and reviewed different things about some of our, our ceremony um, and some other, some other things. I remember he, uh, he asked us this question, so we sat down, right? And, and if, you've, if you remember back to that time, if you have been engaged before, right? It's fun, you're planning the wedding, life is good. And, and he, he looked at us and asked, so, uh, so have you had your first fight yet? And Chris and I looked at each other, we've been dating for like two and a half years, and I'm like, that hasn't been a problem for us. As far as like, we have been very honest with each other the whole time. We're like, have we had our first fight? Let's see, how many years back do we need to go here? Right, how much time do you have? That hadn't been a problem at talking about conflict and, and thinking things out and working through things. Because having conflict and wrestling through hard questions isn't a sign of a lack of intimacy, but growing intimacy. I have a friend who got married and they told us after they got married, got back from the honeymoon, they were like, our honeymoon stage is going to last forever. And I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah, you may think that a couple weeks later, I told you it's gonna last forever. And they thought that because they were experiencing the honeymoon, what do we mean by the honeymoon phase? 
It means that you just get along perfectly and there's no conflict, there's no hard questions. That that was a sign of a healthy growing relationship. By the way, they would no longer say that they're in the honeymoon phase forever. Right, reality hit them. But what would they say? Are they deeper now? Are they closer to their spouse than they were before? Yes. Because as we wrestle with the hard questions with God, it brings us closer to God. As you wrestle with the hard questions to God, it actually brings you closer to God. See, I used to think that faith meant I never questioned God. I never asked God hard things. But God has been continuing to teach me that faith isn't never asking God, but it's how I handle those questions and the attitudes of my heart towards God as well. One of the most profound examples of asking God hard questions that would be very similar in lots of passages to the book of Habakkuk is a man named Job. And many of you have read the book of Job before in the Old Testament. And you know, he is a man who is blessed by God. And then God allows everything to be taken away from him. And we know that Job did not sin. And he starts to wrestle with his life. And he asks God hard questions. He has the audacity. He says, and this is a scripture passage in the Bible. He says, God, why did you even allow me to be born? Why did you even allow me to be born? If my life is going to hurt this bad, why would you even allow me to come into existence? But he wrestled with God. He wrestled through it. He described his life actually a lot like how Habakkuk did. It says in, in Job chapter 19, verse 7, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for thee, but there is no justice. And Job wrestles with God and he leans in and he asks God hard questions until later in the book we see God showing up and God reveals himself in a deep and a profound way to Job. So that when Job looks back, in Job chapter 42, he says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. What he means is I thought that I knew a lot about you. I had heard, but my eye has seen, meaning I have grown in intimacy and knowledge with the God who is my creator. Why? Because he wrestled with God. He brought hard questions to God. He wasn't scared to lean in and ask God. A growing faith in Jesus is an honest faith. A growing faith is an honest faith. So I just want to ask you, are you being honest tonight towards God in your life? Are you being honest with your struggles? Are you being honest with your doubts? With where you're not sure of what he's doing? God can handle your questions. But an honest faith is how we grow in that relationship with God. So Habakkuk asks these hard questions, and the reason it's the Bible and we love it so much is God answers. God answers. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. And if God had stopped there, we'd be like, wow, that's awesome. God is amazing. And Habakkuk would be like, okay, God, you're going to do something incredible. You're going to be something amazing. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. This is going to be awesome. I've cried out to God. He says, just get, get a good seat on the bleachers and get ready because it's going to happen. Watch this. 
verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk was like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Did, did you say something wrong there, God? I think you said the Chaldeans. That, that's the Babylonians. I, they don't love you, God. Like, they're wicked. They're nasty. Like, come again, God. Who are you going to use? I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. In case you need a more description, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. History tells us that in a very short period of time, over just a few decades, the Chaldeans, who were also, also known as the Babylonians, it's the same people, rose up quickly in this century. So that by the end of the century, they were the powerhouse nation in the world. And they were known for their brutality and their military strength and might. They were a godless, wicked, brutal nation. And God says, sit back, that's who I'm going to use. That's who I'm using. To describe some of their military might, verse 8, he says, Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Swooping to devour people. Interesting, this language here at the end of verse 8 reflects back actually to the Old Testament warnings to the people of Israel. That when Moses wrote to them in Deuteronomy and he warned of what would happen if they pursued in wickedness, that God would judge them. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. A hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Verse 9 in Habakkuk says this, they, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Siege warfare was how wars were fought in this time. And the Babylonians would literally, their, their, their tools of, of war were so strong, they would walk up to the most solid fortress and they go, eh, piece of cake, we got it. They would sit back and laugh at their military strength. Verse 11 says, Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk asks God to work, and God says, I'm going to work. Watch this. And Habakkuk's like, wait, what? You're going to do what? You're going to use who? See, the third reason to ask God hard questions is it helps us to discover further the ways of God. Discover further the ways of God. See, Habakkuk had God in this nice, tidy box. That when I make this prayer to God, this is how he's going to answer it, right? God's going to swoop in. He's going to defeat our enemies. He's going to save us. He's going to give us a righteous king. All these expectations of how God was going to act. But sometimes the thing about praying to God is God answers. He answers our prayers and he does something that amazes us and confuses us at the same time. He shows his power and his glory and his awe, but it confuses us as well because it's not what we would have expected for God to do. I think the Apostle Paul 
realized this in his own heart in response to his prayers. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had been given. He says, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Now we don't know what that thorn in the flesh is. There's a lot of speculations. It was most likely some physical hardship that, that God had given that was true in Paul's life. So what did he say? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God, take it from me. God, take it from me. God, take it from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul's leaning in and saying, God, I want you to do this. I want you to be glorified. And God says, perfect. I know what will bring me glory. I want you to be weak. And Paul was like, oh, that's not really what I was thinking like, that's, that's confusing. God, you want me to seem weak and that's how you'll be made strong? Right? God's ways are not our ways. And as we wrestle with the hard questions, we lean in and we see this more and more and more. Several years ago, um, a man came out with a book, I think it was in 2013 or 14, named Nabil, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Karishi, I believe is how you pronounce it. And it was a New York Times bestseller, won a bunch of awards. And it was, he was a, a man who was raised in the Islamic faith and in, Christ, in, in college he was challenged by people to study it and to compare it. And he dove in with hard questions. He dove in with hard questions and his journey led him to Jesus. And soon after that he gave his life to proclaiming the truth about Jesus. He was given the ability, he, he lectured at over 100 universities around the world. Oxford, Columbia, John Hopkins, leading institutions talking about God and his grace and his goodness. And you would think that, okay, God has redeemed a man. His plan for this guy's life must be great. He's going to use him in so many different ways. That would be our expectation. And then in the summer of 2016 he shared that he had cancer. And in the fall of 2017, he died at 34 years old. That's confusing. Like God, here's someone who was an amazing testimony of what you had done, had given his life, proclaimed to thousands of people your goodness, and you give him cancer and he dies at 34? That's just confusing to us. Sometimes God's plan doesn't make sense from our point of view. Isaiah summarized it this way when thinking about God's ways. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, when we ask God hard questions, we can lean in and we discover more the ways of God. That God's ways are far beyond what we think when we ask God to do something, we often think that this is where he's headed. And God says, I'm going to answer, but I'm going to go this way. And when I think of what it means to lean in more with these questions and seeing how God works, for me, it's always very humbling. For me, it's very humbling. And for me, I find when I lean in with these hard questions that I realize that the God that I worship is sometimes too small that I put him in a box. And when, I, when God starts to see, you see that pagan nation over there that everyone hates, that's who I'm going to use. I say, well, God does stuff that I have no idea what he's doing. His ways are so beyond what we could comprehend. And for us, that is so humbling because we assume, don't we, that we know what God's up to. 
that we know his plan when he says it's so far beyond. But at the same time, I think it inspires a sense of awe and wonder as well. Because here's a God who is so powerful. He sees the most powerful nation in the universe and says, I'm going to use them. I'm in control here. What they're going to do, it's not, it's not independent of anything. God shows his power over all things. We sit back in awe and amazement as we see God's ways so much greater than ours. So tonight, if your life isn't going like how you thought, if God's plan is grinding up against your expectations for your life, I just want to remind you tonight that what God's doing is so much more than what you can imagine. God's plan for us is so far beyond our plan for our lives. That's both humbling, but it should also inspire us to awe and worship as well. God, we thank you that you are a God who works in so many profound ways. God, and we confess that so often our view of you is far too small. God, we ask that you would give us the courage to lean in with these hard questions. Some of us tonight are hurting and we're in pain. God, remind us tonight that it's good to be honest with you, that you can handle even our doubts. We thank you for your presence in our lives through each and every journey, and we stand in awe and wonder of a God so great as you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.